0: All right. I want to introduce our guest speaker today, Nick Kidwell. Uh, he is a longtime friend of Redeemer Fellowship. He has spoken here before, and he is just a very good and faithful friend to many of us here. Uh, Nick and his happy <laughs> Nick and his happy Nick and his wife, Happy, and their daughter Anna uh, are preparing to plant a new church in Malvern, Pennsylvania, this coming October. Uh, so please be praying for them and for the counting kids, I think 70 or so people that they are, are planting with there. We're very excited to, to hear how God is going to use that church plant. What's the name of it? Valley Creek Church. Yes. Uh, Nick is here today to talk to us about a very sensitive topic. As you know... Over the next couple of weeks, we're, we're slowing down in our, in our study of 1 Corinthians to consider three of the sins that we see listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Last week, we spoke about drunkenness. Today, Nick is going to talk to us about a biblical perspective on homosexuality, and next week, Jason is going to talk to us about greed. Uh, now, what, what I want to say is that it is not normal that we would ask a guest speaker to come and to talk about such a difficult topic like this. We're not trying to outsource the hard messages. That's not what's happening here today. In fact, uh, I spoke on this topic at Covenant Fellowship almost eight years ago, and if you would like to hear from one of your own pastors on this topic, I can send you the link to that message later this week. We'd be happy to share that with you. Please just text or, or email me. But when, when I spoke about the Bible and homosexuality back in 2014, I actually had a member of Covenant Fellowship share their testimony during that message. Their testimony about how they wrestled with same sex attraction and how they had come out of a homosexually promiscuous lifestyle. Uh, and that person gave their testimony in the middle of that message. And he, It was Nick Kidwell, and he did such a good job that afterwards I didn't even feel like I needed to finish preaching because it was so powerful. And I'm so thankful this morning that eight years later, Nick Kidwell is an ordained elder in Sovereign Grace and that he's getting ready to plant this church. He is a trusted friend and a very skilled pastor, and he's going to serve us very well this morning as he uses God's word to speak to this important topic. So let's welcome Nick as he comes to preach.
1: Good morning, it is so good to be here with you guys. We do uh, love Redeemer Fellowship. Happy and I desperately wanted to be a part of Redeemer Fellowship, but God had different plans, Uh, but we realize it's been three years since we've been able to uh, be here, and it's just so encouraging to see how God has blessed and grown this church. I'm always encouraged when I hear stories coming out of Redeemer. Um, salvation testimonies and things that god 's doing, so thank you all for your faithfulness to the Lord. It is so encouraging to a church planner like me to see what God can do and what God is doing among another church uh, in the area. so thank you thank you all, and thank you for having us um, this morning and yeah Joel trusting me to uh, speak on this issue. <laughs> we are, as Joel said, continuing in your first Corinthians. Uh, series and slowing down in this vice list and taking a look at a few of these items and I will be speaking this morning on the topic of homosexuality and we'll be speaking specifically on homosexuality not diving into other aspects of the discussion gender issues and so forth there's only so much that 35 40 minutes can hold Uh, but hopefully the principles that we discussed this morning are going to help lay a groundwork for you to think through the other areas biblically as well And as we know, this issue is very sensitive, it's very divisive in our current culture. I don't think I've ever uh, edited and worked on a message as much as I worked on this one just because I want to communicate truth and grace and love, and I want to handle this well. And this topic, it it pops up just about anywhere we look nowadays. And any of us who can remember back the past 10, 15 years know that there have been just massive societal shifts as we relate to this issue. A recent Pew study showed that while in 2003, only 47% of Americans believed that homosexuality was okay, just 16 years later, in 2019, 72% believed that it should be accepted, and 21% believed it should not. And within those numbers, there was a 10 percent increase in christians who felt that homosexuality was permissible in a span of 15 16 years this is a huge societal shift in thinking and that shifting view has led to increasing activism in the public sphere as would be expected and individuals and churches are being forced to wade through the topic and decide where they land on the issue And will potentially face consequences for their decisions. Not to mention, and most importantly, we're gonna have increasing numbers of people we love identifying under these categories. I feel like just the past few years it's just so frequent. You hear stories of someone who has a relative or within themselves are are struggling or transitioning or coming out. It's it's surrounding us and we need to know, how do we love these people? How do we approach this ourselves? Do we love others by affirming and encouraging this position? Do we indulge in this position ourselves, or are these distortions of the created order and our homosexual actions sin against a holy God deserving of God's wrath? How do we know what's right? Well, again, it was trusting of Joel to let me speak on the issue, and and again, part of why he did that is because he knows my story and I'm very happy to stand as a testimony to God's grace and share my story gladly and how God can work and move and the power of the gospel, but I do want to make clear I don't have any special authority this morning because of my background. Despite popular perception, the determiner of truth is not me and my experience. And if you haven't experienced what I've experienced, then you can't tell me what's right or wrong. No, the determiner of truth is God alone. And God's word is our standard of truth. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning to answer this very important question. And despite what many say, God's word is clear on the issue at hand. Now, if you're here today and you're someone who identifies under the LGBTQ spectrum and you struggle, or you struggle with same-sex desires, I want to say, I'm so glad you're here. I know your pastors are as well. And my sincere hope for you this morning is for your good. That's God's desire for you this morning. We're talking about this today, and we do so not because it's the worst of all sins or because Scripture centers all around it. As you probably know, there's actually only a handful of areas in Scripture that directly address this issue, but we're talking about it because God cares much about human sexual expression, and He cares about that for our good. And as with all categories of sin, Scripture gives hope to the sinner through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot we're not going to be able to cover, again, given our time constraints, and there's probably going to be a lot of questions you still have or even get raised by the message itself. But again, I'm hoping the groundwork we lay here will be helpful for us to think biblically about this and other issues. So that being said, turn again to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to read again verses 9 through 11. And just a brief reminder, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, it was a bustling metropolis city known for its loose morals, its great wealth, its philosophical and cultural diversity. Paul writes to these believers to urge them to walk, I'm stealing this from your sermon series, in purity in the midst of an impure world. That's what Paul's writing for. As one commentator states, many winds of doctrine blew into the harbors and along the streets of Corinth, and it must have been very difficult for young Christians to keep on a straight course. It's very relevant for us this morning. We have access, unparalleled in human history, access to so many voices, So many waves of doctrine, how desperately we need the word of God to set us straight. The believers in Corinth needed a reminder of who it was they were following, what he had done for them, and what that meant for their lives. They were beginning to identify themselves more with the world than with Christ. So Paul seeks to remind them, and he reminds us today that our identities are to be found in Christ. And our behaviors are to reflect that reality. And though, again, it's not the focus of this text, we will see how that truth and this passage informs our thinking on these issues. So with that in mind, let's read this. I'd like to pray for us before we do. Father, we thank you That you have not abandoned us we thank you lord that you desire to know us we thank you that you desire to redeem us and as impure people in an impure world we need you we need your son jesus christ for the cleansing and forgiveness of our sins and we need help by the power of your holy spirit to know and believe truth So we pray as we read your word this morning and we discuss that you would open our hearts to truth, that we would receive it with gladness, and that we would be message bearers of that truth to the world. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is a short but very important passage of Scripture. It offers warning, it offers encouragement, and great hope to all of us who struggle to live lives as God has called us to. And it speaks a very necessary word this morning with regard to these issues. And because this issue is so sensitive, I'm going to reiterate some of what Joel has already shared on this passage to give context to the discussion, to help us see through a biblical worldview, because without seeing the world the way that God sees it, we won't see this issue or any other for the way that he sees it as well. And what we see in this passage is that sin and judgment are real. That homosexuality is a sin and that God transforms the sinner. So sin and judgment are real. You all spent time in this a few weeks ago. I got to listen to Joel's message online. Was so blessed by that. But just to be reminded, God has standards for our lives. Part of the biggest dilemma facing the entire discussion around this is that the very idea of telling somebody else that they are wrong in the things that they are choosing to do is quite abhorrent in our society. We claim that nobody should be able to stand in the way of anybody else doing whatever it is that would make them happy. Well, Paul, in chapter 5, just rebuked the church for tolerating an incestuous relationship in its midst. He's going to go on in chapter 6 to call out other practices as well, and he knows that this rubs up against their anything-goes culture, so he reminds them of the basis for this seeming intolerance. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul sees their behaviors and he fears that they have forgotten some very basic truths, that sin is real, that God opposes sin, and that God will judge the sins of men. God is a personal God. He has moral standards. In fact, He is the ultimate source and standard of morality. He is righteous. Thus, sin and holiness, right and wrong, they exist regardless of what we think. And because God is righteous, He calls His people to be righteous as well. But as humans, we have a hard time accepting that. Because even though God made us to know Him, to love Him, to trust Him, to enjoy Him, to reflect Him to one another in the world, to be with him for all of eternity, we have all turned away. Scripture makes that clear. Like arrogant children, we all think that we know better and we turn to sin. And because we've sinned, our fellowship with God has been severed. After that first sin entered the world, we became corrupt. And the effects of that corruption extend extend to every facet of our being. It affects our bodies, it affects our minds, it affects our emotions, and it affects our desires. Despite popular belief, people aren't born good at heart. Scripture says no one is good, not even one. And in response to this corruption and this sin, God must execute justice. He's a holy God, and He will not tolerate sin in His presence, which is why He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. The kingdom is His perfect and holy eternal kingdom, His kingdom which has no tears, no pain, no sorrow, and no darkness, a kingdom that we should all long for, and a kingdom that we should be glad no sin is allowed to enter into. So it's in this context that we discuss moral issues, standing before a holy God, under the good rule and authority of him, in the context of sin and corruption, holiness and justice that relates to all of us. And in particular today, we begin there as we discuss this issue of homosexuality. Because if homosexual activity is a sin and homosexual desires are disordered, which we will see that they are, then we need to help people turn away from them rather than embrace them, just as we all seek to turn away from various sinful desires ourselves. So sin and judgment are real. We're going to get the good part later of what God does for us in response to that through Jesus Christ, but we have to start there. So now let's take a look and see that this passage and scriptures make clear to us that homosexual activity is a sin. Though the church for the past 2,000 plus years has seen a clear denunciation of all homosexual practice in the scriptures, there's some who say that we've gotten it all wrong. They say that Paul only meant to address homosexual sexual abuses and uh, promiscuity, or he wasn't denouncing consensual and, and committed homosexual relationships, or they say that Paul didn't understand, he didn't know yet about fixed sexual orientation, so he couldn't possibly have been addressing or speaking to that. But we have to ask then is, is that true? Have we gotten it wrong for so long? Did Paul mean something else that we we didn't catch? Well, as we'll see, Paul was not limited in his condemnation of the practice, but was speaking to all forms of homoeroticism. The idea that Paul didn't have all the facts and couldn't possibly be condemning the types of practices that we have today is simply incorrect and ignores the history that we know. In the first century, every kind of homosexual relationship was known, from lesbianism to orgies to gender malle- malleable marriage to lifelong same-sex companionship. There's even some discussions they have found on, is this a fixed trait in people? These aren't just modern inventions or modern discussions, and Corinth was full of many of these behaviors. Paul knew some in the church who had engaged in these things, and he stands in opposition to any and all such practices. I have a few quotes that I've pulled in here from folks who are outside the church just to remind us this isn't just us in some narrow view, bigoted against something. This is what God's Word says, Lewis Crompton, who is himself a gay man and a pioneer in queer studies, admits, nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. In Paul's time, In the Gentile world, most forms of sexual expression were permissible. However, for Paul, this buffet-style approach to human sexual experience was not God's intent. And it was, in fact, evidence of a departure from God. God takes human sexuality very seriously. That applies to all of us. As Kevin DeYoung states, you would be hard pressed to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, and more seriously condemned in the New Testament than sexual sin. And why is this? Well, it's because God designed sex for a glorious purpose and there's a way that it's to be enjoyed, and enjoyed to its fullest. Like eyes and ears and mouths, our anatomy has been purposed and designed by a good God, and that design extends beyond just mere pleasure or doing whatever it is we want to do. He has reasons for these things, and all of Scripture's handling of sexuality is rooted in the very beginning, In the very beginning of creation, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, God created men and women to reflect him to the world both in their similarities and in their differences and he also designed them that they might multiply reduce uh, reproduce and subdue the earth built into the very design of mankind is the ability to enter into intimate relationship with one another and to be reproducers who multiply and fill the earth with people who can reflect God's glory and in order to do that he instituted marriage And he set it up that the only way the emotional, spiritual, physical joys of romantic relationship could be realized to their fullest is between a man and a woman. Not once does Scripture ever insinuate that a marriage could exist that's not between a man and a woman. God designed that a man would leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and that the two would become one flesh. And this is a good saying. However, when mankind abandons the lordship of God in their lives, they give up pursuing what God intended and instead seek what God has not allowed. We see this in the book of Romans. In fact, Paul highlights the sin of homosexual activity to show this very point, that When men and women depart from God, he gives them up to do those things that are most unnatural to how he structured them to be, unnatural with regard to function and design and the purpose that he has given. God did not design for men to function sexually with other men and women with women. He intends all sexual activity to be constrained within the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. And he created our emotional lives to find their fulfillment in that arrangement as well. God's good design is wonderful. And to engage in anything else denigrates that. I was thinking about this, and I think given the cultural discussion, it can be very hard for us to think of it this way. It can be very easy to think, well, yeah, what's the big deal, or why does god care so much i was thinking about if someone took a well-crafted stradivarius violin i don't know how many of you are musical but i'm not a violinist but i know this term these violins can sell for nearly 16 million dollars they're they're a big deal they are well crafted now say someone took this and instead of using it to play the music that this thing can produce they cut the strings off, they filled it with snacks, and they set it out at a dinner party. <laughs> now, someone untrained in music might say, hey, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty cool, pretty neat idea. But anyone who knows the beauty and the value and the worth of that violin, what it was made to do, its good craftsmanship, its good design, would be outraged to see it used in such a way. This is how God views the misuse of our bodies, and that doesn't just apply to homosexuality or or transgenderism, it applies to the young man in his bedroom alone looking at pornography. That is not what God intended. He made us, He made our biologies for wonderful purposes. And he views sexual expression between a male and a female and the covenant bond of marriage as a beautiful thing. And we should too. It's a sacred act that unites body and spirit, and one that can produce further image bearers of God. This would have been Paul's understanding of the scriptures. And the world around him. And and this understanding lines up with the words that we see Paul use here in this passage. What what the ESV translates as men who practice homosexuality is, is right. It actually consists of two Greek words here. You'll probably see a footnote in your Bibles about this. The way that Paul uses these two words is explicit and clear. One word encompasses the active partner in homosexual activity, and the other word describes the passive partner. In using these two words as he does, Paul makes direct connections with the complete prohibition of homosexual activity found in the book of Leviticus and makes no exceptions. And while this may offend our modern sensibilities, may have been news to some of these Gentile believers in Corinth, Paul's inclusion of homosexual practice on this list would have been uncontroversial in the Jewish community of Paul's day. No positive case can ever be made for homosexuality from the scriptures. Nowhere do we see caveats or nuance on the issue. Nowhere do we see examples of positive homosexual relationships, and this isn't true of the other cultures surrounding Israel. You see these things discussed, but there's often caveats, there's often situations, it's okay, it's not okay. Paul doesn't do that. Scriptures don't do that. Again, even those outside the church acknowledge this. One Dutch scholar, Pim Pronk, who's himself a practicing homosexual, says, wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. And another liberal scholar states, the biblical texts that deal specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. As Kevin DeYoung states again, if, if Paul wanted to shock his fellow Jews and the early church by allowing for committed same-sex relationships, Paul picked an impossibly obscure way of introducing such a radical change. The scriptural presentation is, cle- is clear. clear homosexuality, like all other forms of sexual immorality, distorts God's intended design. With that being the case, then why are so many churches and individuals changing their stance? It's not based on a straightforward reading of the scriptures. I'd argue that it's a stance that follows a previous determination that homosexuality cannot be wrong. And how do people arrive at such a determination? Often through personal experience or or pressure or the culture around them. And we're all susceptible to this in any variety of ways. We have to let the Word help us understand the world. We don't use the world to understand the Word. Often these shifts come from those who either experience same-sex attraction or or genuinely feel compassion for the same-sex attracted. And that's commendable, to feel sorry for folks who are struggling, for folks who are confused. That's that's good. And for many years, the rhetoric around the issue often very loudly used the word choice. And there's an aspect of truth to that. However, for many homosexual people, people who struggle with homosexuality, that desire didn't feel like a choice to them. That would be the experience of myself, that those desires weren't actively chosen. And it's due to that seeming lack of choice that many believe then, well, it's, it's a core human trait which God could not possibly condemn. How could God expect a person to be someone they're not? Why would God deny someone their happiness? Why would God make someone have desires that can't be fulfilled? And while these arguments can be emotionally persuasive, they don't line up with the scriptures, they're not rooted in truth, and they elevate sex to a status that it's not meant to have in our lives. Sexual activity, though wonderful and glorious that God has created, is not the chief end of man. And our sexual desires do not define us any more than thirst or hunger do. Though popular opinion would state that people are born with certain sexual orientations and those orientations bring definition to personhood, the claim that that homosexuality can be tied to a fixed hereditary or biological trait has yet to be supported by evidence. In fact, sexuality is shown to be quite fluid and malleable. However, even if it could be shown to come exclusively from some biological source. That does not solve the issue of whether it's right, and it also does not define personhood. We know, as we have said, that the very core of who we are is corrupted by sin. And that includes aspects of our biology. There's any host of behaviors that people claim may have some biological basis, alcoholism, overeating, and so on. But we still recognize that those are disordered. And we've got to push back against those and help people out of those things. We all struggle with desires that should not be fulfilled and with longings for things that are illicit. But the mere presence of desire does not warrant action, nor does it define our personhood. We don't call a person a murderer until they murder we don't call a person an adulterer until they've committed adultery, and that's true for Paul as he thinks about, the, about homosexual activity. There aren't homosexual persons in opposition to heterosexual persons. There aren't rage people and non-rage people. Rather, there are people, male and female, made in the image of God with desires who act. By desiring a woman, a man doesn't show himself to be a heterosexual person, but rather a person acting in accordance with God's good design. Our desires don't define us. Now, some may say, okay, I understand that, but why Why is this wrong? Unlike thievery or adultery, homosexuality doesn't hurt anybody. This also is persuasive to many. However, Again, we must let God's word have a say. We don't judge sin off of perceived consequences. If we judged off of consequences, then little white lies should be okay. Private personal use of pornography really shouldn't be that big of a problem. Private evil thoughts should be permissible. The list could go on, but no, God makes clear what sin is and he reminds us that all sin is harmful even if we can't perceive its immediate consequences. He knows the way for us to live. That said though, even from a purely secular perspective, there are many known negative health effects to homosexual behavior. It does harm people. Studies show that those who engage in homosexual practice have a 25 to 30-year decrease in life expectancy, high chances of chronic and potentially fatal liver disease, increased risk of AIDS and certain cancers, and increased suicide rates. This is, It's staggering. Those stats are worse even than the stats associated with alcoholism. Yet, as a society, we claim that embracing such practices will bring about health. Now, I don't deny that like many things, some experience a level of relief and even joy when they embrace their desires. This happens with most sins. I can imagine a man who's just fed up with his wife, lost interest in her, and thanking God for the strength to divorce her and finding joy in his new freedom. Sin often gives us pleasure in some way or we wouldn't do it, but that does not make it right. Paul says, do not be deceived. We are at risk of being deceived on this and many other issues. We must speak truthfully on this issue, not because we're offended Not because we feel threatened or we're losing some kind of cultural war, but because we deeply care about people. This is why Paul speaks, because he cares and he desires to see people saved, body and soul, into right relationship with God. And not only that, but he desires to see people experiencing the earthly fruit that comes in living the way that God calls us to live. And the wonderful thing is that while we must contend for the truth, we aren't leaving the person who deals with same-sex desires without hope. God has not consigned them to a life of misery. Far from it. Which leads us to our last point. God transforms the sinner. Paul says, And such were some of you. but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is astonishing. The people in Corinth, they used to be consumed by greed, by drunkenness, sexually immoral practices, including homosexuality, pagan worship, thievery. I'm sure this list could go on. Yet, God had transformed them through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We all know vices and addictions are very hard to break. Just think how hard it can be to refuse a slice of cake that you really want. How much more for some of these other things? It takes a miracle for someone to walk away from strong desires and practices such as these. The world's not wrong. Change feels rather impossible in a lot of situations. Yet, this is the very thing that saw Paul saw among the people of Corinth. He saw them change. Paul knows and he has seen that the power of God is greater than the sinful desires in our hearts. To Paul, change is possible. Possible. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. The Greek used here expresses a once-for-all event. The sin that once defined you, that sin that once separated you from God, does so no longer. And not because of something we have done. But all of this happened because Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for the very unrighteous people that opposed him so forcefully. He died a righteous man so that we might all live through him and be made righteous before our God. We might get to inherit that heavenly kingdom that he has promised. Whatever the stain of sin is in your life, if you have trusted in Christ, he has washed it away. He has given you new life. And it's through that new life This is what Paul wants these believers to hear. You have new life in Jesus Christ. Do not live as if that weren't true. Don't be the dog that returns to its vomit. Through that new life, we can now live by the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's will. This means that once we have repented of our sins and turned to Christ, If we were a thief, we're to no longer steal. If we were sexually immoral and having sex outside of marriage, we are to stop. And the homosexually active person is to turn from their homosexual activity and fight against homosexual desires. Not because God is a great killjoy, but because God offers us something so much better our happiness is not found in fulfilling every single desire that we have true happiness comes in knowing god and following how he's called us to live and knowing his son jesus christ and what he has done for us and when we do this when god becomes our greatest desire then he brings all of our conflicting desires into right order he puts them in their place We all have to walk this path. We all have sin we must turn from. I found it immensely helpful when I realized I was only being asked to do what all my brothers and sisters around me were doing. I was called to surrender to God those things that I once held so close but which brought death to me, not life. And in so doing, I got to experience God's grace. What a glorious truth this is for all of us this morning. I can remember my tendencies to anxiety, jealousy, and manipulation even further back than I can remember my tendencies to homosexual attraction, yet God in His mercy has washed all of them clean. I stand before him not marked by those things but marked by the blood of Christ and it's not just that I've been forgiven but God by his grace has brought much change in all of those areas. I'm not prone to be jealous as I once was. I no longer manipulate as I once did and God has given much victory over homosexual desire and has brought about right ordered desires towards my wife. All to the glory and praise of God our Father. This is God working out my sanctification. And I'm sure and I'm confident and I know that there are many such stories in this room, ways that God has changed you, things that you once desired, things that you felt stuck in that God has broken those chains, loosed you from, and has given you new life, hope, and joy in Him. You are a different person than when you first met Christ. Praise God. But we have to acknowledge, as with all things, while there was a once-for-all aspect of our sanctification, sanctification is also an ongoing process. So that means we should not promise or expect that the person who struggles with same-sex attraction will be miraculously freed from all desires overnight. I prayed for that for years. I felt very discouraged. It did not happen. It could have. I have heard those stories, but it didn't. With most sin struggles, we often have to work and fight, and the process of mortification of sin is one of long-enduring faith that trusts in our God as he works out his image within us. And sometimes those struggles last our whole lives. And as we fight in the power of his spirit, we can celebrate all the small victories along the way. The absence of all temptation and desire is not the measuring rod for true change. If someone struggles with anger, but they become less and less angry with time, we say that they have changed. Even if some temptation to anger remains. That's true for the homosexually attracted person. If their desires wane, if they abstain from engaging on those desires, if they repent when they fall, if they're working and fighting against their sin, God is working in them and we can take joy in seeing change, even if some temptation persists. If you're here and you experience same-sex attraction and, and you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, I have such respect for you. Most people aren't being told to try and turn that to try and turn from their sin is futile, but you are. Most people aren't being told that small forms of change in their lives don't count as change, but you are. All that I can say is keep fighting the good fight, Let others in on your struggle if you haven't already, and remember that your treasure is Jesus Christ and God alone. Whatever sacrifice, whatever struggle you face now will all be nothing. Nothing in comparison to the joy and the life that you will experience in the age to come. However, I also encourage you, and this is where I think some people miss this as well, I encourage you to press into God that you might experience increased measures of freedom and that joy here on this earth. God offers that hope to you now. Do not be consigned to sin. While some who experience same-sex attraction may remain celibate all of their lives, which is a God-glorifying path to follow. That takes strength. That takes courage. Many will get to experience marriage as God ordained it to be. This has been my path by God's grace, and I know many other people who have walked that path as well. And to those of you who don't deal with this issue personally, I encourage you in a few things. First, remember your own sin, your own struggles, and heed all of this for yourself as well. And second, walk humbly as you relate to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. While homosexual activity is a very illustrative example of deviation from God's will, it is grievous to him, so is deceit, which also appears on many vice lists. Recognize that those who experience same-sex attraction are merely sinful humans as yourselves and are not on some kind of categorically different sin plane. If you have loved ones immersed in this lifestyle, it's going to take patience. It's going to take compassion, discernment, a lot of prayer. And there's not just a rule book for how to walk through these things with other people. But the one thing you need to do, most of all, is to help them see their great need for a Savior. I like what one author says. Christians who want to explain the Christian faith to gay friends need to know that what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain, and it's probably not the first thing or even the main thing that they need to focus on. It's not until we see Jesus Christ for who he is that we see our sin for what it is. If you have believed ones struggling, come alongside of them. Point them to God's grace and Christ's forgiveness. Encourage them, exhort them, and please, 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 Be steadfast for their sake in the truth. It's going to get harder and harder to do that in our culture if the direction we're headed does not change. I expect the unbelieving world to embrace godless behavior, but oh, what a terrible and grievous thing it is when believers soften their stance towards sin and lead other people towards hell. Do not be deceived. Your brothers and sisters who face same-sex attraction need your humble, loving care to help them see the goodness of their Savior and to be affirmed in their fight against their sin. I know that it was through the faithful, patient, loving, and honest support of my brothers and sisters in Christ That God has me standing here today, proclaiming this truth, seeing my beautiful wife, experiencing freedom and joy. What a glorious and gracious God we serve. And finally, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, I encourage you to do so this morning. No matter what sin you find yourself marked by, God stands ready and eager to forgive you through the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son. No matter what you feel trapped in this morning, know that God, through Christ, can set you free. We're so hopeless and helpless apart from him, so very blinded in this world and enslaved to sin, so turned around. We all have gone astray. I count myself among this number, yet by mercy and the grace of God I stand today as one over whom Paul declares, such were some of you. So let us all then walk in light of our new identities that we have in Christ And let us all proceed to help others on towards the Savior because Christ died for sinners such as us that others might be saved as well. And Christ provides the strength needed to live in the newness of life that he offers us. Let's pray.